Thanks to advances in cancer research, around 17 million people in the United States and millions more around the world are living with, through and beyond their diagnosis of cancer. Nearly 40 years ago, I was a newly qualified doctor treating patients with Hodgkin lymphoma. Our patients were sick, having had extensive surgery, the combination of drugs was strong, it took a massive toll on the patient's immune system. But it was also such a time of hope. Hodgkin lymphoma was the first cancer that showed it could be cured even after spreading to other organs. The word cure is still rarely used in cancer medicine, but with evidence of 40 years of disease-free survival, that early work showed what was possible. Since then, many other cancers can be put into long-term remission, and some also even said to be cured. Technology has moved on, but treating cancer remains a challenge. In particular, brain cancer. Still, only one in three people survive more than five years. But scientists now have an increased understanding of cancer at the cellular level. Can they use this to find a way to fight the condition? Are we on a new cusp of hope? I'm Dr. Hilary Guite from Medical News Today. As part of National Cancer Research Month in the United States, we're asking, why is brain cancer so difficult to treat? The reason we haven't made as much progress in brain cancer and actually all brain disorders is the blood-brain barrier. How big is this problem? My feeling is, being a neuro-oncologist, that brain tumors is COVID every day, has been for 20 years. These patients die rapidly, there's no good treatments. And what are the solutions? The future is going to be amazing for our patients because now we're understanding every patient's tumor in a depth that we've never done before. To discuss all of this, I'm joined by Dr. Yella Hewins-Martin, Senior Research Editor at Medical News Today. Hello, Yella. Hi, Hilary. Thanks for joining me. Before we get into brain cancer, can we talk about the mechanism behind cancer in general? We like to think we know what cancer is, but actually, what is it? Okay, so in cancer, some of the cells in the body divide and don't stop dividing like normal cells. And so they start to form these little structures that turn into tumours. And those tumors or cells from the tumors can then break off and travel around the body. And this is what we call metastatic cancer. And what causes it is mutations. Mutations are a normal process that happen in cells all the time. And most of the time, our body is very good at finding the cells that have mutations and either fixing those mutations or getting rid of those cells. But what happens in cancer is some of the cells slip through the net and then the cells Um, transform into a cancer cell because they have all these mutations. So these mutations in the patient's genetic code, they cause the cancer cells to make different proteins. And by proteins, we mean those fundamental molecules that have all sorts of functions to keep our bodies working the way they should. But the mutations also mean that the surfaces of the cell are different too. Yes, exactly. That happens in many cases. And what that means is that the immune system cannot find these cells in the same way that it would find a normal cell. If they look different, why is the immune system not able to find them? The immune system is normally very good at finding anything that looks different. 
But cancer cells are very good at hiding. So they either make proteins that make them look normal or make them look like other cells, or they hide some of the proteins that a normal transformed or kind of weird cell would have on it. And then the immune system can't see them anymore. So the challenge for oncologists is to work out how to get past all of those sneaking mechanisms that cancer cells have to hide themselves. That's it. Exactly. What are the usual treatments for cancer? Are they still just the basics of surgery, radiotherapy and chemotherapy? Or do we have new treatments now? So in many cases, those still make up the mainstay of any kind of cancer treatment. There are some more targeted therapies now. So if the surgeon or the cancer team know what is going on in that particular person's tumor, they may be able to pick a therapy that they think this person's tumor will respond to more specifically. And so one thing that people are increasingly able to do is find the mutations, the specific mutations that make up a person's cancer. And then in some cases, they're able to match a particular type of drug to that mutation rather than using something generic for that cancer as a whole, using something that is a targeted therapy. Wow. So it sounds like cancer treatments are really evolving. Yeah, that's it. You're right. One new type of therapy in cancer is immunotherapy. As we said, cancer cells and tumors are really good at evading the immune system. They hide from it. And then the cells in the immune system can't get to the cancer and destroy it. And so immunotherapy, the whole idea behind it is to help the immune system find those cancer cells and do their normal job, which is to get rid of the cells and to get rid of the tumor. There are different types of immunotherapy. One of them is called checkpoint inhibitors. Immune checkpoint proteins are a type of protein that many cells make that normally tell the immune system to turn off or go away, basically. And that's to stop the immune system from overreacting. And so if a cancer cell can make that type of protein, it will mask as a normal cell and the immune system will say, hold on, you're not a cancer cell, you're a normal cell, I'm going to go away and do something else. So this is the cloaking of cancer cells. Exactly. And so immune checkpoint inhibitors stop that process. And then the immune system can once again access those cells, even if they display these so-called immune checkpoint proteins. I spoke to Dr. Santosh Kesare, who's a neurologist and neuro-oncologist at the St. John's Cancer Institute in Southern California. And he told me why these are useful in cancer treatment. Using drugs such as nivolumab and pembrolizumab, the immune system recognizes the cancer. And that's been the revolution for the past 10 years. These checkpoint inhibitors have changed the game completely, initially with melanoma and now lung, some forms of breast cancer, uh, renal cell cancers, and many other cancers. It's been an interesting shift from these traditional approaches of surgery, radiation, chemo, to now immunotherapy being added and leading the treatments for many of these cancers. For brain, though, we've studied many of these, and while there are hints of activity in the brain, we still have a long way to go. There's nothing approved in the brain in terms of immunotherapies. Yana, why are brain cancers so tricky to treat? Why is there nothing approved yet? One of the problems is getting things into the brain. What Dr. Kayseri told me is that the blood-brain barrier, which is made up of a lining of cells that 
protect the blood vessels in the brain from many molecules coming in and from things going out. He told me it's really difficult to get anything through the blood-brain barrier. Drugs just don't get into the brain very well. It's really a, an evolutionary protective mechanism. We don't want all the things that the rest of our body sees to go into the brain and cause neurological problems, including infections, viruses, bacteria, etc. So it's a protective mechanism, but for certain things such as infections or brain cancer, it's not good because drugs just don't get in very well. The same drugs that we use for lung cancer, if the lung cancer goes to the brain, it just doesn't work very well at the doses that we use because not enough gets through the blood-brain barrier. It's been a huge challenge over many decades of making progress in brain cancer field. But, you know, our team and many other people think about this problem every day and all day. And drug companies have become better at making drugs that do get into the brain. And we also learned how to take existing drugs and use different doses to get them into the brain better. So that is probably the most critical challenge that we have to deal with all brain diseases. Okay, so that's the blood-brain barrier. But are there other problems? Like, for example, is the immune system different in the brain? Yeah, so in the past, the prevailing thought was that the brain is immune privileged. And that's a scientific term. And what it means is that the immune system is slower or doesn't work quite as well in a particular area of the brain. What scientists know now is that there are actually immune processes that do happen in the brain. So that kind of calls into question that concept of immune privilege. The immune system doesn't traffic in the brain as well as other organs is one of the thoughts why immunotherapy is not so effective in the brain. That may or may not be true, actually. For instance, lung cancer or melanoma that goes to the brain, it seems to actually work pretty well. Although the blood-brain barrier is not the same, it's, it's disrupted. The place where we have difficulties, you know, the primary brain tumors, glioblastoma, those types of tumors where it, it arose in the brain, and those seem to have a different, what we call tumor microenvironment, different sets of immune cells there that actually are not helpful immune cells. They're actually inhibiting a good immune response, whether it's to vaccine or to checkpoint inhibitors. So they're counteracting the effect of the drugs that we want to give patients. But as you can imagine, cancer forms for a reason. So the cancer has evolved with these mechanisms to prevent the immune system from recognizing the cancer. And even when it recognizes it, it has counter mechanisms to prevent the immune system from doing its job. Otherwise, the cancer would not have formed in the first place. Wow. It's amazing how things are moving on. So we've just talked about one form of immunotherapy, the checkpoint inhibitors, but are there others? Yes, there's a few others, and one of these is vaccines. Now, we've all heard a lot about vaccines recently, and in infectious diseases, vaccines train the immune system to recognise a pathogen, you know, a bacteria or a virus, and fight against it in future infections. What we know from cancer is the cancer cells hide from the immune system. So the vaccine essentially tags the cancer. It's almost like putting a little flag in to say, I'm here, you can now see me and do your job. So that's the theory behind cancer vaccines. And there are a couple of different technologies, just like with the vaccines that we've heard about so much recently. So if we draw a parallel to the COVID-19 vaccines, the vaccines that many people have heard about from Johnson & Johnson and Oxford AstraZeneca, they use another type of virus 
to deliver the genetic code for our own cells to make a protein. So we call these viral vector vaccines. And that is the same concept that some cancer vaccines are using. So you've just explained to me that you can use a harmless virus to take the genetic code for the cancer to make the protein. So that's one form. And you can use that in cancer as well as against infection. But what about other types of vaccine that can be used in cancer? Yes, so mRNA vaccines were actually first developed, or the idea behind them first came from the cancer field. mRNA vaccine technologies made headlines recently, but actually people have been working on this concept, particularly in cancer, for a long, long time. Dr. Kayseri has really been at the forefront watching the developments to see how these have evolved for cancer therapies. The great thing about mRNA compared to a virus vaccine is the manufacturing and scalability and cost. So once, for instance, you have a new virus, as soon as you get a virus, you isolate it in a lab, you can sequence it, you get results within 24, 48 hours, and then you can immediately make the mRNA version that you want for vaccine purposes. And it's really built upon decades of research and informatics because understanding what's a good vaccine, what's not a good vaccine at the protein level and then translating to the mRNA level has been built over many decades. It uh, allows for rapid production of vaccines. And that's been proven with the vaccines for COVID, how fast you can do it when you have a lot of resources and a lot of need. And my feeling is, being a neuro-oncologist, that brain tumors, uh, to me, is COVID every day has been for 20 years, meaning there's such an urgent need. These patients die rapidly. There's no good treatments. Obviously, COVID is a pandemic, but on a daily basis to the individual patient, we deal with those sorts of life-threatening issues all the time. mRNA technologies have been used before COVID for cancer vaccine development, and there's various trials that have been done and are still ongoing. And I think now with these established technologies, they can certainly be pivoted and used for cancer vaccines. And it may actually be better than a virus vaccine too, because the mRNA technology delivers the RNA to the cell, and then the cell makes the protein that is expressed on the surface that is then recognized by the immune system. So rather than finding the protein and making the protein, making the mRNA is much cheaper and easier. Did you ask Dr. Kayseri whether this mRNA technology would be helpful in the treatment of brain cancer? I did, and he said he definitely thinks it could do. I think this mRNA technology can be used for any cancer, including brain cancers. So when we see a patient with cancer, nowadays we're sequencing everyone's tumor so that we can figure out what all the mutations are, because we're also in the era of personalized medicine where we have drugs against specific mutations in the tumor. But the other thing, that same sequencing of the tumor and all the mutations helps us also understand which mutations in the tumor may be good to make a personalized vaccine. And I think it's accelerating now going forward because these technologies are getting more widely used because once you do the sequencing, you can make mRNA and then deliver it to the patient and the mRNA technology is great because once you know the sequence, it's easy to make the whole set of mRNA sequences for each protein of interest and then put it into one product. So in practice, how is Dr. Kayseri planning to use these personalized mRNA vaccines? Okay, so remember, we said most of the time 
when a patient is treated for cancer, it's surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, and then possibly immunotherapy, usually after that, so as an adjuvant or additional treatment. And Dr. Kayseri wants to turn that on its head because by the time there's been major surgery, radiation, and chemo, often the immune system is not doing very well anymore. Even if you give immunotherapy, that immune system is not at its best. So by moving that immunotherapy, whether it's a personalized mRNA vaccine or another type of immunotherapy earlier on in the process, you may be giving the immune system a better chance to do its job. And they call it PIN or precision immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting, as Dr. Kayseri explained to me. So normally what we do for brain tumors, we take out the tumor and then we do radiation chemo. And then most of our clinical trials are after that. And it, it hasn't worked for decades. And the problem is that maybe the radiation chemo just creates such a bad environment for anything to work. Or the tumor is super aggressive and nothing's going to work, uh, which I don't believe. What we've understood with the immunotherapy is that it's better to do it early on. And there's studies of this in recurrent cancers. After chemotherapy, the immune system just isn't strong enough for immunotherapy to work. So our idea was to do it neoadjuvantly, meaning before radiation and chemo, let's try various immunotherapy approaches. And that's a study we started three years ago. We haven't published yet, but I think is going to be the way for the future for brain cancer. And some patients have remarkable responses for many years. Now, I wish I could say it was a high percentage, but it's a start. And these are just using two drugs, checkpoint inhibitors. And I think going forward, we want to combine it with the vaccines that we just discussed and we want to do it personalized as well. So at the time of surgery, we sequence the tumor, find all the mutations, make a vaccine within a few weeks and start vaccines, checkpoint inhibitors, and actually tumor microenvironmental modulators. And so we need to probably understand that upfront in the beginning of the disease course so that the trajectory is affected for the long run. So, Yella, can you tie it all together for us? What does the future of cancer treatment look like? So by looking at every patient's individual tumour, trying to find out as much as possible about it, the mutations that cause the tumour in the first place, how likely they are to respond to different therapies, cancer teams will be able to choose the right kind of treatment for that patient by combining surgery, chemo, radiation, and different types of immunotherapies, hopefully exactly at the right point in time to allow their own bodies the best chance of beating that cancer. And Dr. Kayseri told me this. I think there is really, uh, and we've seen this in various patients on our clinical trial, not a high, super high response rate, but nonetheless, for the patients who responded, it's amazing. Several patients out over two, three years not having had to do radiation. So that's it's quite promising. We want to build upon that. And we need to incorporate these personalized vaccines and other drugs uh, that we know will help with the immune response to the tumors. So I think it's extremely promising. How to combine drugs is a challenge always, especially when it's different companies' drugs. And how to fund this type of research is also challenging. And we depend a lot on philanthropy to help us do these proof of concept studies. But I think as we show proof, we will be able to get companies and NIH and other people to help us really push this forward faster. Do you think this type of treatment will one day be available across the world? 
Absolutely. I think research always starts in one place. And as we show that it works and get the approvals, you know, expands and expands. And I think the mRNA vaccines are kind of a low cost approach. And if we can make vaccines work using that technology, that will absolutely help in terms of cost and adoption and getting it to all the needy people around the world. We're very excited using new technologies and using them to prove that something works, but also to make sure once it's approved that everyone gets access to it. Yala, thanks for joining us today and for helping us understand these amazing new developments. You're welcome, Hilary. And also many thanks, of course, to Dr. Kayseri. And thank you for listening. To find out more, you can read Yala's full report and much more at our new Cancer Hub. Just go to medicalnewstoday.com forward slash cancer. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit, and this is a High Vis Radio production for Medical News Today. Mm-hmm.